We have an Old Testament and a New Testament lesson this morning. As we think about those words, I am the light of the world. The Old Testament lesson taken from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 2, page 554 in your pew Bibles. The first five verses. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And now from the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, beginning at verse 12, page 868 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father. Who sent me? Then they asked him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. For just a couple of minutes at the outset of this message, come with me, in your mind at least, to a large grassy place in Princeton, New Jersey, inside and around the Princeton University Stadium. It's the 4th of July, and the fireworks are about to begin. At one point in my ministry for about 20 years in a row, I went for two weeks every summer to Princeton Seminary for seminars for pastors, and the two weeks always included 
the 4th of July. So all of us, or most of us anyway, would walk to the Princeton Stadium, get there at about 9 o'clock at night. Thousands of people were pouring into the stadium and around the stadium. The New Jersey State Symphony was there playing, and people were starting to get excited. They were there waiting for what they knew would take place and what they could watch with enthusiasm. And they knew it was coming when the symphony played the 1812 Overture. Because immediately after that was the Star Spangled Banner. And everyone stood and chanted, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? The Fourth of July does that to people gets them excited and enthused and nostalgic and patriotic. And as we finished singing the national anthem, the sky exploded with those fireworks, symbolizing the light over the darkness, the freedom we celebrated as a nation. It was just really exciting to be a part of it. Now, picture Jerusalem. Same sort of situation. 21 centuries ago, September, October time frame, really 15 to 21 Tishri, the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, and they didn't call it Independence Day, they called it Hag Hasukot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Bleachers had been set up in the large open courtyard, the court of the women within the temple complex, the busiest part of the temple. It was a place where crowds of people were there all the time, and it was one of the best places imaginable to make some kind of a statement and get the biggest audience and the most coverage for making it. As the feast began, the sun began to sink, anticipation began to rise, and everybody sort of held their breath as the opening ceremony was about to take place called the illumination of the temple. Somebody came out and lit four huge candelabra that stood in the center of that courtyard, and it was said that when those candelabra were all burning, you could see it all over Jerusalem. And once that happened, the whole throng of people in that open courtyard danced all night from sundown to, to rooster crow in the morning, celebrating the gift God had given them in redeeming them from the darkness of slavery in Egypt to the light of freedom in the promised land. It was a kind of Independence Day with their equivalent, at least, of fireworks. Now, it was during that feast. In the temple courtyards, John specifically says, where the offering was taken, and in the wall of the temple courtyard, where it, the court of the women was, were 13 different offering containers. This is where he was, in the middle of the place where the Feast of Tabernacles 
was to be held, maybe even in the shadow of those four huge candelabra. And there, in the middle of that crowd, he said, I am the light of the world. Not just Jerusalem, the whole world. And not just for the illumination of the temple or the Feast of Tabernacles, but for always. And not just lighting up the glories of your historic past, but lighting the way to your even more glorious future. Oh, say, can you see him, the light of the world? That's not only a familiar thing, perhaps one of the most well-known of all the things Jesus has ever said, I am the light of the world. But when you stop and think about it, it's kind of an odd thing to say. But we have politicians who say things that at least approach that. I am the person who is best suited for the moment. I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the one who is here at just the right time. But I am the light of the world? We've not heard that from one as far as I know. It was strange even when Jesus said it. And that's why the very next line is, the Pharisees challenged him on that. There, in the court of the women, during the Feast of Tabernacles, in the shadow of those huge candelabra giving light to the whole city, Jesus was saying, I am your God. I met somebody once who claimed to be God. It was on the campus of Berkeley in the 70s. It's when you'd expect to meet somebody wearing a sandwich board that says, I am God. He really did think so. But the audience just laughed at him, made fun of him, poo-pooed the idea. They would never have known who he was claiming to be if he hadn't worn a big sign, almost as big as he was, that told us. But Jesus was declaring in so many words, I'm God. Remember when Moses was being, let's say, interviewed by God for the job of being the leader of Israel. And he came up with every excuse he could imagine to stay out of the job. And he finally said, well, suppose they ask me God's name. What shall I say? I mean, they don't know who's talking to me. They don't know what your name is, Lord. What will I say? And God said, tell them I am sent you. That was forever after God's name. Remember David the psalmist singing in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. I am his light. Remember in the wilderness for 40 years, the pillar of smoke and the, or of cloud and the pillar of fire accompanying Israel that Moses described this way, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. When Jesus said, I am the light 
of the world, he was saying, I am, I am. I am your God. He was also saying, I am your protector. That pillar of cloud and pillar of fire symbolized by the lights that were burning around them in those candelabra in the courtyard was a symbol of God's protection. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire came between them and their enemies. It was a way of God symbolizing how his love and protection encircled them. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, I am God, he was saying what Paul would later put this way, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. I am your protector. That pillar of fire and pillar of cloud was also the way God led them through the wilderness. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. The purpose of Christ's coming was to enable us to see our way to God and to go that way to God, to help us see and find the truth about ourselves, about our sin, about our salvation, and about our responsibility as people he had redeemed. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was saying what he also said in John's gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am your guide. Simple sentence, I am the light of the world, but what an amazing occasion in the temple courtyard. Declaring he was there and here. Then and now to be God's presence with us, God's protection over us, and God's guide for us. Do you see of course, whether we think about it or not, those fireworks on the 4th of July are there not just to remind us of significant events in our past, but of the importance of being responsible citizens in the present. The light of the world came not just to shine on us, but to say, now follow me. Actually, the light said we should constantly and consistently and always and wholeheartedly and never casually follow him. Following is something a soldier does for his commanding officer. No matter when the order comes, no matter what the order requires, no matter how difficult it may sound, no matter how far it means you have to march, the soldier obeys. We are the soldiers of Christ who follow him wherever. Following is something a slave does 
for a master. No matter what the master asks, no matter how complicated it sounds, no matter how tired the slave is, no matter how busy we are with other tasks, we are the slaves of Christ who obey the way a slave obeyed a master, except with love. Following is something a disciple does with a mentor. The mentor is the expert. His wisdom is superior. His judgment is the best. His opinion is the valid one. The Christian is someone who follows Christ wherever, knowing that he knows best. And following is something a student does for a teacher. If you ever want to have an argument on your hands that you can't win, tell a second grader his teacher is wrong. In second grade, at least, teacher knows best, and teacher is always right. And the attitude of us students toward Christ is the same. William Barclay, in his commentary, put it this way. To be a follower of Christ is to give oneself body, soul, and spirit into the obedience of the master. And to enter upon that following is to walk in the light. When we walk alone, we are bound to stumble and grope. For so many of life's problems are beyond our solution. When we walk alone, we are bound to take the wrong way because we have no secure map of life. We need the heavenly wisdom to walk the earthly way. The man who has a sure guide and an accurate map is the one who is bound to come in safety to his journey's end. Jesus Christ is that guide. He alone possesses the map to life. To follow him is to walk in safety through life and afterwards into glory. Oh, say, do you see Christ, the light of the world, and seeing him, do you follow? The Jews were surprised and many of them shocked when Jesus said in the courtyard that day in that setting, I am the light of the world. They knew what it meant. They knew what he was saying. Some of them saw the truth and gave up their old way of life and followed him. We read later in the chapter, many put their faith in him. But some of them turned away from the light, was too much for them to see, and they made work of figuring out how to extinguish that light. Nobody was unaffected. They either came into the light, and for them life was new, or they got away from the light, and for them life was over. But the light who astounded the crowd that day by saying, I am the light of the world, then said something that even sounds more astounding, perhaps, to us. He changed the subject of the sentence and added, and you are the light of the world. Not lights in and of yourselves, but reflecting the light we have from him. You are the light of the world. Christianity is not simply a matter of the heart to keep inside and secret and close to oneself. It, it is all of that. 
But it is so that it will be revealed in life and obedience and witness and service and serve as a light to our world in and for the whole world, not just our homes, not just our churches, not just our schools, but the world and the factories and offices and garages and hospitals and courtrooms and restaurants and libraries and stores where we find ourselves during the week. Letting Jesus Christ and his way be seen and heard in us. Oh, say, do they see him when they see you? You are God's lights. You are the light of the world, he said. Not only that day, but this day, a kind of protection in this world from evil. Protecting people who can't see where to go or how to get there, what the way to life is, because God has already shown you. Like warning flashers along the road saying, don't, don't veer off to the right or to the left, follow the light. Having heard Isaiah's words, arise, Jerusalem, and shine like the sun. The glory of the Lord is shining on you. Other nations will be covered by darkness, but on you the light of the Lord will shine. The brightness of his presence will be with you. Nations will be drawn to your light and kings to the dawning of your new day. Oh, say, do they see him when they see you? You are God's guards in the world, and you are God's guides, a kind of guide for others. When I was thinking about Princeton Seminary and those fireworks every year, it reminded me of an experience I had at the dining hall where breakfast, lunch, and supper were served every day on the seminary campus, they had a kind of a menu board that was maybe three feet by two feet on a stand outside the dining hall by the door, and it was uh, made of glass, and when it was written on, the words came out about the colors of the I am on that screen. A myriad of rainbow-like colors which was attractive and attracted attention, but for some at least made it difficult to read, especially if it was just handwriting and not big block print like that. One of the people I got to know at Princeton going there that often was legally blind. And one day as I walked up to the dining hall, I saw him by the menu with a notebook and a pencil, and if this is the menu, he was about that close to it and writing in great big letters in his notebook what the menu for the day was, because he couldn't read it off the board as he walked past. And I walked up to him and said, would it help if I read it to you? And he said, it sure would, thank you. So I read him the menu. I have to tell you, he wasn't thrilled with the selections. But then he knew what was being served, and he wouldn't have known. He, he couldn't even see, as close as he got, exactly what was being offered that day. And it occurred to me afterwards, that's what a Christian 
is like in this world. In a world full of blind people who are squinting to see the way and the truth and the life, we can say, let me show you. By example, let me show you. Let me be your guide. Let me be your light. Showing you what you could not see, what I could not see unless God were in me, and giving you the light because seeing the light makes us God's guides. I read of a chapel service that was held at a Christian college once, and the speaker was exalting all the handiwork of God that could be seen in creation. And, and it truly is amazing when you look around you or listen to someone talk about their travels, the amazing signs of God's creativity and imagination that are evident in the world around us, just this planet in this universe. And the speaker was exalting the green hills and the purple mountains and the majestic forests and the raging rapids and the trickling streams and the placid lakes and the enormous oceans and the huge creatures and the organic little microscopic creatures and the fertile jungles and the arid deserts and said, God is everywhere. All you have to do is look around and see. And if you keep your eyes open, you'll see his handiwork. And then he said, the thrill of the mountains and the deserts and the rivers and the oceans and all the rest pale, though, in comparison to knowing God by faith in your heart. And somebody in the back of the room said, then I haven't missed a thing. And everybody applauded. The MC realized that the speaker didn't know who that was or why that was said. And he said, let me explain that to you. That was Steve. And Steve is blind. Has been all his life. He never saw any of the rivers or lakes or oceans or trees or animals you were talking about. But when you said you can still see the light of the world when he lives in your heart, Steve wanted you and all the rest of us to know he hasn't missed a thing. It was a fitting conclusion, though unexpected for the speaker. The light of the world had entered the heart of one whose eyes could not see, and then he could. I am the light of the world, the light said once. And then he said, once you see me, so are you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, it's wonderful that you came and showed us the way to the Father and showed us how much God loves us and cares about us, and revealed it most explicitly in your suffering and death and resurrection. Now that we know the truth and believe the truth, help us to live the truth and show the truth and reflect the light of the world in all we see and say and do. 
in his name. Amen.